This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Alan Weingrad. How are you, Alan? I am doing great. Happy Hanukkah to you and all your listeners. Thank you so much. Happy Hanukkah to you as well. You are speaking to us, I think, from the sunny, beautiful state of Florida. Not going to lie, a little bit jealous here as I record in the depths of December. So Hanukkah is a little different down there, I imagine. I'm looking out my window of downtown Fort Lauderdale. There's not a cloud in the sky. It, it might be hovering around 68 to 70 degrees. No wind. Today, you want to be outside. No question. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I'm in Maryland, so it's, it's not like that today in December, but uh, <laughs> maybe in about four or five months. Anyway, Alan, are you from Florida? Where did you grow up? What was your early childhood like? Uh, born in Brooklyn, New York. At the age of three, moved to New Jersey. And then at the age of nine, moved to Miami. And the year was 1972. 1972. So, was that the year that the Dolphins uh, went 16-0? and 0? Yeah, I was a nine-year-old kid. Became enamored with the Miami Dolphins and professional football. Hence, my journey started. Interesting. As I recall, every year when the last undefeated team loses, I believe the uh, the members of that team, Don Shula, the coach, and the players all uh, pop some champagne. Is that still a tradition? I think it is, yeah. I think they still get together. They're all certainly getting up there in age. But yes, it's certainly a record that still stands today and people still talk about about that, and we actually call it the Shula curse, as um, the Dolphins have never been back to where they were from those days. I know the Patriots almost broke that record a couple years back, and then uh, the Giants, I believe, took care of that. I believe it was the Giants. Well, then in 85, you had the Bears that were 14-0, and and they lost to the Dolphins on Monday night, and I was, I was in college at the time watching that game with great anticipation, hoping the Dolphins would beat the Bears so they wouldn't go on to, to, to break that record. So, fortunately, the Dolphins were the spoiler. There you go. So, it sounds like you had an early interest in football, perhaps uh, attracted by this outstanding team that, that you had in your town. Did you play at an early age, and what was that like? So, the deal is, I got tremendous energy, you know, ADD need to be active all the time. And I have an older brother who has the same energies, but on a different level. Uh, his motor goes to a much higher degree, believe it or not. And my dad saw at an age of six for me, eight for my brother, living in New Jersey, that I got to get these kids outside of the house. <laughs> get them away from me, right? <laughs> well, they're breaking everything in the house. So, so he, he bought us uh, helmets and shoulder pads and jerseys and so we started playing, you know, playing, killing each other outside. And then Pop Warner football started. And obviously I was following my brother's footsteps all through the years. He was an outstanding high school player. I was not. But my frame started to develop and, and continued developing. And it took some years till my athletic abilities caught up to it. I know that you know were that you a, uh, an offensive lineman, which is not the position you would imagine most Jewish kids would be playing. Was that a position you played early on? Well, I, actually... Believe it or not, if, if you look at the amount of Jews that play in the National Football League and you did some type of stat, you would see most of them are offensive linemen. Interesting. Do you think that's you know? it's because it's a cerebral position? Not to stereotype, but... <laughs> well, I, you know, to blame the NFL, it's have to have not only great athletic ability, but the, it's more mental than anything else. So it, it could be. I know during the years that I played, all the other Jews in the NFL, and I knew all of them, 
because some Jew in this country would all send us all letters to let us know who the other Jews were. So when the games would end, what would you do? You'd go say Shalom Aleichem to the other guy, you know? <laughs> and it's, it's really funny, and people laugh like you do, but when the games ended, you generally go say congratulations or good game to the defensive player who you just fought for three hours. Right. You don't want to create any hostile enemies. But if you knew there was another Jew on the other team or, an, or a coach that was Jewish, he knew you and you knew him and you went over to say hello to him after the game. That's powerful. That's cool. And you should know that they only let five Jews in a year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that's all they allow or that's all that can make it <laughs> more likely. It just seems to be that's the magic number for whatever yeah. reason. Interesting. I've met the Schwartz brothers before, uh, also offensive linemen. So, and I imagine you have some kind of a, a longstanding kinship with all of these, maybe sort of a right. fraternity of sorts. Moving back to your childhood, though, Alan, what was your Jewish life like? Was Judaism a part of your life at an early age? Uh, right. Mostly athletics? Yeah. Listen, my mom was the driving force behind it. She would light candles on Friday nights. Uh, she would ensure that we went to Hebrew school on Sunday and Tuesdays, and then we learned how to read Hebrew. We became a bar mitzvah, and she said, listen, you're not going to go to your high school, Rosh Hashanah. However, you're going to go to synagogue, but you're going to football practice that afternoon. There's no question about it. So um, we got eight presents for Hanukkah. We went to a Seder by the grandparents' house. I don't recall it being two Seders. I don't know where the two Seders came in. But uh, we always went to one Seder, and they always stressed the fact to uh, marry a Jewish girl. That was something I remember as a kid. And she always said to me and my brother, who's no small guy himself, <laughs> you got to be a professional. Whatever you do, you got to be a professional. But they never finished the sentence. They didn't say doctor, lawyer, CPA. So he became a police officer. No. <laughs> 30 years in, in Miami, Dade County. Wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then I, you know, I went on to become a football player. So we're both professionals, I guess. There you go. Uh, did you early on make this like kind of a dream? Was it something you knew you wanted to do early on? Or was it just sort of a hobby? And, it, and then at some point it became, well, this could be serious. No, I don't think it was a dream. Uh, I never could dream that big to play in the NFL. For me as a high school kid, my dream was, okay, I want to get better. I, I, and I want to play college football. So fortunately, I got a college scholarship. Where did you go to play? I went to a school called East Texas State University, a small Division II school in Northeast Texas, who, by the way, is playing for the national championship for Division II college football Saturday night in Kansas. So I, I do have intentions to uh, try to make it to that game to see the first national championship since 1972, believe it or not, or oh. 71. So it's, it's been long, long running for that school. So when I got there, I wasn't big enough. I wasn't fast enough. I was 6'5", but not 250 to play college football. But, you know, after a couple of years, I started to develop into a pretty good football player. And at the end of my sophomore year, the coach sat me down like he would sit anybody, any player down, and, and said, listen, Alan, what, let's talk about your goals, your dreams, your desires. And I said, coach, I want to be the team captain. I want to be All-American. I want to be All-Conference. I want to start 11 games. You know, I want to grade out at, at a high percentage. And uh, those are my goals. He said, unbelievable. You really thought about all these goals. And I said, yeah. I thought the conversation was over. And then he said to me, what about the National Football League? Now I'm 19 years old, and, huh. and the offensive line coach was looking at me across the desk, and he's talking to me about the National Football League. I didn't have anything to say in regards to that. And he says, I think you should start thinking about it. That's probably a pretty rare feat for a Division II player, is it not? Listen, the NFL is going to find you wherever you are. At that point in time in my life, I was starting to develop a little bit, you know, now gaining some size and strength. And I didn't think much about what he said to me other than the fact that this is now my new goal. 
Yeah. I didn't think how they were going to find me. I didn't think that I just said, okay, if my coach is telling me that he sees something in me, then that's all I needed to hear. So I, I happened to just retool my focus a little bit sharper that day. What strikes me as remarkable about that vignette is that your coach with just one sentence, one statement was able to transform your aspirations and really change your life. I mean, uh, it's really inspiring and also, I guess, somewhat intimidating or, or, or frightening that the power that any person really has if you're in a position uh, where you're engaging with young people where you can sort of uh, help reorient them to a much bigger vision for themselves than they even may have dreamed of. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and there's no question that that one sentence, that conversation really changed it. And nobody could talk me out of it. Why? Because somebody of authority has been coaching small college football for, at the time, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 years. A guy that's been in Texas coaching, you know, hundreds of athletes said to me, you have what it takes. You can't argue with that. Yeah, speaking from uh, expertise, uh, had he sent many players to the NFL himself? I think there was, you know, just, just probably a handful that has come from that school over the years. Um, right. Most notably, Wade Wilson played, I think, 17 years in the NFL quarterback. Harvey Martin played for the Cowboys. Uh, Dwight White played uh, for the Steel Curtain. So there's been some players that have, that have come out of there, sure. And there might have been some in the last X number of years. I, I don't follow it you know, so closely. But listen, if you excel, they're going to find you. Absolutely. So I imagine you finished out your college career there. And did you enter the NFL draft? What was that whole process like? It was a nightmare. <laughs> That's honest, at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you finish your senior year, you're team captain, you're all conference, you're all American. You have all these college scouts coming through, working you out. You're 6'5", 270, running a 4'9 in the 40-yard dash vertical jump 30 inches, benching almost 500 pounds, not an ounce of fat. You know, you're going to the NFL, and here comes the NFL draft, and there goes the NFL draft, and you're not drafted. Aye. Right. So, like, my dream's over. It's shattered just like that. But, listen, you know, after the draft, and back, you know, back in those days, it was a 12-round draft. Right. Draft ends, you're on the phone, and teams are trying to, you know, to sign free agent offensive linemen, defensive linemen, whatever. And it's still a tryout. It's still an opportunity. Yeah. So I, I signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers just because they didn't draft any linemen that year. Uh, nothing to do with them being in the state of Florida. Went to Tampa, uh, spent uh, two months there before training camp, working out every day with me and a bunch of other guys trying to make the team. And training camp opened up. And 10 days later, they said, you don't got it. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're not fast enough. And they sent me home. Uh, and were they, were they kind of telling you, hey, you don't got it for us? Or were they telling you, you don't got it? period. Like, we don't think you can play in this league. Well, they didn't really have to say a whole lot because I saw the rotting on the wall. I, I wasn't competing. You know, I, I couldn't compete. They, I just couldn't. I just didn't have the, the quickness. I just wasn't ready for that. The, how fast things were moving, I just didn't have what it takes. So I said, you know what? Maybe I don't have it. I remember I came home and, and when you get cut, you go out on the waiver wire. So within 24 hours, you are available to the team with the worst record to take you off the waiver wire with your contract. So I'm sitting on my bed and the Oilers call. Teams are always looking for linemen. They're always looking for big players. Body. They're looking for yeah. sc body, scout team. They're looking for diamonds in the rough. I mean, they need players. There's not a lot, a lot of guys walking around 6'5", 270, running a 4'9". So they said, we just got you on the wire. Come on out to Houston. You know, we're into, into the second week of training camp now or just finishing the second. So I thought, hey, man, Texas treated me great for five years in East Texas. Let's go be a Texan again. And 
flew out to Houston and worked out with them for three weeks. Possibly I was a little bit better, but after three weeks, they said, look, we thought about keeping you, moving you to defensive end, but we just can't invest time with season starting in a few weeks. So I said, the heck with the league and flew back to Florida and sitting on my bed again, my phone rings again, second time. And it's East Texas State letting me know that I forgot something because I was there for four years, didn't graduate. And they said, Alan, you, you should come back help coach the football team. And also you have another year of eligibility to throw the shot put in discus, which I did for three years there and lettered. So I'm grateful for the coach reaching out to me for that. So I flew back to East Texas and uh, I just had a focus of, you know what, I'm going to throw the discus shot, but I'm going to, I'm going to leave that with a degree. And somewhere around the time the Dolphins are playing the Bears with the Bears being 14 and 0, I'm watching the game and coaching football and I'm training. And I think, you know what? I should give this another go. So it was that following spring, just a few months prior to graduating, that I asked my sports agent to call the Packers, and they flew me up and signed me to a league minimum contract. So you think it was kind of that extra time that really gave you the, uh, I guess, the edge that you needed or the, the incremental improvement? Well, actually, it really wasn't so much the time, but the coaching. When I got to Green Bay, there was a very technical coach, and he taught me the techniques that are required to play offensive line in the NFL. Now, with my athletic ability and those techniques, I happened to bubble to the top of about 10 or 12 players that were also young free agent rookies from nowhere, and the Packers had a real problem. They needed a couple of offensive linemen to step up because one guy was holding out for a larger contract, had somewhat of an attitude, and they said, you know what, let's give this guy Vinegrid a chance. So from day one, oh, also, not only was holding out, someone else retired. So the Packers did not have a right tackle. So I stepped in at right tackle, and I started 20 games that year, four preseason and 16 regular season. But it was really to the credit of the offensive line coach that taught those techniques that are, are so needed for a lot of players. Now, some players can certainly play uh, on ability, but I wasn't one of those guys. So again, you have a, a strong mentor figure making that real impact, investing the time in you that others weren't quite ready to, uh, to invest. Well, it, it was either that, and I, I'm certainly blessed that in high school I had a great strength coach. He taught me the techniques required to lift weights, and still today I, I use those techniques. You get to college, great offensive line coach. You get to the NFL, failed twice, but had an offensive line coach that taught those techniques. And some coaches teach different techniques, and some say play ball. This particular guy was instrumental in me picking up those techniques and making the team. Did you consider giving up after those two failures? I mean, had you kind of resigned yourself to not playing in the NFL at that point? Or were you still sort of holding out hope? Well, I, I would say that I, I said the heck with it. I, I was a realist. I felt like I didn't have it. However, I wanted to try it again. And fortunately, the Packers had a need to bring in linemen. And so they gave, you know, gave me and 11 other guys a chance. Truly, 11 guys almost exactly like me. They all got cut the previous year or they were free agent rookies from who knows where, and um, there's not a lot of guys, like I said, walking around that could run and knock people over. <laughs> exactly. Alan, tell me a little bit about your Jewish experiences in the league. Uh, you mentioned the Shalom Aleichem post-game ritual when you would encounter other Jews. Uh, did you have any other Jewish experiences? Was your Jewish identity in flux at all during that period? I imagine when you were in college at East Texas, Probably weren't a whole lot of Jews there. Doesn't seem like, you know, like a Brooklyn exactly. But what was it like once you got to the league? Well, I mean, even before I, I start to tell the league part of it, I got to East Texas State and 8,500 students 
many of which are from Dallas, but certainly from, a, from the surrounding areas and almost to a person, I, I never met a Jew before, but these are good quality Christian Bible people. And they were interested in knowing about me. Alan Vinger, a Jewish kid from Miami, like, wow. Like, they were interested in knowing about me as interested I was in knowing about them and going home with them to their farms and their ranches and riding horseback and working cattle and, and seeing their cotton in rural Texas. And I used to bring players to Miami Beach to sit on the beach and check out what's going on down in Florida. And they used to take me home, but I never one time experienced anti-Semitism. It was, it was more, more of an embracing than anything else. And to be honest with you, the same thing happened in the National Football League. I was always the only Jew on the football team. However, I wasn't the only Jew in the locker room. Quite often when the media would come in, we could make a minion. Um, <laughs> but my teammates quite often would say to me, you're one of the chosen people. And I would ask them, like, what do, you, what do you mean I'm one of the chosen people? What does that mean? And then I would say to them, actually, like, what do you know about Jewish people? Oh, my agent's Jewish. My CPA's Jewish. You know, my lawyer's Jewish. And I blew out my knee last year, and Dr. Weinstein fixed my knee. So some of my teammates, the ones I was getting closer to, would start to have these kind of conversations with me about the Jewish people. Did you feel prepared to have those conversations, to be sort of a, a representative. Sometimes, you know, when, when there are Jews in significant minority positions, they end up feeling unprepared and sort of inadequate to the task. And often that sparks a learning journey for many of those people. What was your experience? Well, during the years at East Texas State, it, there wasn't much of an experience other than me telling my teammates I'm Jewish. I didn't do anything. I didn't go anywhere. I just told my teammates I was Jewish, and I saw that they're interested in it. When I got to the NFL, there was a family in Green Bay that read about me in the, in the Jewish press. Like every year, I'm sure they list who are the Jews in the NFL. So this particular family, the Weinsteins, read that the Packers had a Jewish kid trying out for the team. So once I made the team, there was a note in my locker to call Lou Weinstein. <laughs> okay, like I read this, I just made the team. I'm thinking, what does this guy want from me? Why would somebody that you don't even know call you? But I saw the name and I'm thinking, okay, I know there's a Jewish guy here. I know that this guy is local from the local area code. So I call him on the telephone and uh, he said, hey, look, welcome to town. Can I buy you lunch? And uh, I go, what's, what's this about? He goes, we got some business to talk about. And I was like, well, what kind of business? And he said, listen, with all due respect, I don't discuss business matters over the telephone, but I'll see you at my country club next Tuesday at, at 1230. So I go to this particular country club. I'm a rookie with the Green Bay Packers. I'm five days away from starting my first regular season game. I'm sitting on top of the world, and I got somebody buying me a free lunch. Not a bad scenario. So I go into this country club, and there's this old man. He's waving his hands at me, and I walk over to him, and I say, hello, Lou, I'm Alan Bonner. He goes, yeah, I know. I know who you are. You know, you're kind of hard to miss. You know, it, at 65275, and I sit down, and we start having a conversation, and he just says to me, you know, you're one of five Jews in the NFL. Do you know that? I go, no, I have no idea. And he says, what are you going to do for Rosh Hashanah? I said, what are you talking about? He goes, Rosh Hashanah is two weeks from Tuesday, and I know it's your day off. I'd like for you to come to synagogue with me and my family. And then he says to me, you know, do you know anything about money? And I said, no, I never had any before. He goes, maybe after lunch, we should go talk to my money manager. Where do you live? And I said, I'm living in a hotel. He goes, you want to live in my house with me and my wife? And I said, listen, sir, I just met you. He goes, do you want my realtor to set you up in a nice one-bedroom apartment furnished? I can get all this done by 5 o'clock today. I'm, I'm a businessman here in town. I own a clothing store and a shoe store and a lot of real estate. And the relationship developed from there. Uh, unfortunately, he passed you know, about 10 years ago, but I stayed in touch with the family. And it just goes to show you how a Jew can reach out to a Jew and have a significant impact on them.
That's incredible. Were there any Jews in Green Bay? I mean, in general, was I mean, it sounds like there was a synagogue. Yeah, there's, there's a synagogue there, and I, I believe there was about 95 Jewish families. And during my five years, they found one eligible girl for me to go out with and had two <laughs> dates. And she, she wasn't for me. But I, I did go to synagogue with his family and develop this, this very close-knit relationship. It was not a religious person, per se, but he certainly knew you know, the importance of, of, a, of a Jew looking after another Jew. So you played in Green Bay for how long? Five seasons. Five seasons. And any memorable experiences other than uh, Lou Weinstein? How about from a football perspective? Uh, what was that all like? Well, I mean, listen, it's certainly accomplishing a tremendous goal, especially when the Houston Oilers cut you the previous year and your first start as a Green Bay Packer is against the Houston Oilers. And going on to play five years and starting out of those five years, two of those years, uh, developing some relationships that I still have today. It's a tremendous place, Green Bay. And I've sent dozens of people there over the years. Don't tell the Packers, but I, I do get the opportunity to buy tickets on occasion. And I get tickets for a lot of people because it's one of those places you need to go to and check off, you know, your bucket list because it's such a very special place. And I get back there maybe once every couple of years myself, just as a spectator. And it's generally to see the, uh, the Packers play the Cowboys. Because you did eventually matriculate to the Cowboys, did you not? Right. So I spent five years playing for the Packers and it was a tremendous career there. And, and just being there, just really loved the environment there. Uh, I was given an opportunity to join the uh, Dallas Cowboys and signed to go play for them. But played two years down there, started maybe at six or seven games. But I, I was now on a team of Hall of Famers, you know, with Emmett Smith and Michael Irvin and Troy Aikman. That was uh, 91 and then 92. We won uh, the Super Bowl. And I see you had your glasses on and I got my ring on here. <laughs> I had a meeting early this morning and it, it certainly helps meetings to wear your Super Bowl ring. I'll bet I'll try to remember that for my next, uh, my next business meeting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. what, what was that Super Bowl experience like? That, that must have been thrill of a lifetime. Yeah, you listen, we won 10 games as, as our best year as a Green Bay Packer in 1989. We won 10 games and we thought we had it going on. We were, we were coming from behind. We are winning games and we didn't even make the playoffs. You get to Dallas and I look around, I'm thinking, man, they're, they're three deep. Their third team defense alignment can start anywhere. I, I mean, this is the, the worst thing for me as a backup offensive lineman playing for the Dallas Cowboys. We're, we're Wednesday and Thursday running scout team. The games were easy. You, you got Tony Casillas, you got Chad Henning, you have Charles Haley, you have Leon Lett, you have Jimmy Jones, Tony Tolbert. It was like a revolving door of guys during practice. And that was not easy. Let me tell you right now, as a backup line, and you had to give a look. You, you had to go full speed, and they're rotating through trying to get their repetitions. And so, but it was a, it was a great football team. Learned a lot from uh, Jimmy Johnson. Certainly learned a lot from being around Hall of Fame guys and, and watching them and seeing how meticulous they are about preparation, about work ethic. And I've always looked to others and incorporate you know these type of traits in my in, in my own life. That Super Bowl run was incredible. It was a you know, great, great football team. You know, what can I tell you? The, the Cowboys just really put all the pieces together and arguably over a five-year span put one of the greatest teams together. Uh, hence, you know, they won three Super Bowls during, during those 90 years. Being up close to all those greats, would you say that, in fact, it was their preparation, their meticulous attention to detail that really separated them from the pack? Or is it, at the end of the day, more about their talent? You know, listen, no one worked harder than Michael Irvin. He worked tirelessly. Certainly my favorite teammate for the work ethic and his passion he put into the game. You know, Emmett, Michael, but guys like that got something a little bit different here. Yeah. You know, a little bit more of a little bit fine-tuned, you know, with their focus. You generally don't see guys like that have a bad day. 
you don't see the Tom Brady's have a bad day very often if you do it all. I mean, we did see we did see Big Ben have a bad day once this year with the Steelers, and everyone was like, oh, he should retire. But you get to that level, and the, the Michael Jordans and you know the Dan Marinos, it's you just don't see it. And I, I think they have that speed, that gear, and that focus. I don't know where you get it from. Have any of those relationships endured? Yeah, well, not not the guys that I spoke of, but I, I still keep in touch with, I'd say, three or four Packers. Probably see them sometimes. I go back to Green Bay. I try to call them, and some of them will come in, or, you know, one has a home there, so we get together. Uh, when I go up for tailgating, I speak to another guy who lives in California. So there's probably four or five guys that I speak to. But you kind of move on in life, and you had all those teammates, and if you keep a handful of them, that's that's pretty good. I've gone back to reunions with the Cowboys just recently went back to the 25-year reunion this past March, took my brother as, as my guest, my date that night, and it was just uh, tremendous to see people who we haven't seen in 25 years since this game ended, which was my, you know, my last game. It's just great to see that. And when you have those kind of sticky relationships, it's like just nothing, time hasn't passed from, from the last time you saw them. Yeah, it's an incredible bond, I would imagine, that can't be understood outside of that tight-knit group. Right. Tell me, Alan, a little bit about your Jewish journey after the NFL, because I do know at some point you, you certainly increased your, your level of participation, your knowledge, your investment. When and where did that start to occur? You know, Weinstein invited me to synagogue with him after not being in synagogue many years for Rosh Hashanah, my rookie year, 1986. My little connection to the little Jewish community there has like, tried to fix me up, going to play for the Cowboys. My sports agent lives in Dallas, Texas. As a part of his negotiations to get me to leave Green Bay to come to Dallas, he did say to me, fine, great. You're certainly not one of the more handsome people around. Green Bay doesn't have a large Jewish community. Dallas is a bigger one. Maybe we can expand your dating opportunities here, which was part of the negotiations to get me to come to Dallas. But, <laughs> but really, my Jewish journey really kind of got kind of kicked off when I, uh, I came back to South Florida and uh, got married to a Jewish girl, started raising a family, and my cousin, who's a radiologist, kind of my go-to guy as I was getting hurt over the years, he invited me and my wife and our new child to his home for Shabbos, which I had never been anywhere for Shabbos before. I mean, I, I didn't even know what that, what really what that meant. An observant family, four distant cousins of mine. So I, I went and I was interested in, in what was happening that night, but more around what was being served. His wife was a gourmet cook, uh, is a gourmet cook, the challah is homemade, hot out of the oven. Like, if you never experienced that, it does mess with your head. You're like, where did this come from? You know, and they, there's a little Shabbos sprinkling on top of the food and the, and, the, and the teriyaki salmon and the chicken and the brisket and, and all the side dishes. And he saw how much I appreciated the food, so he kept on passing it to me. And listen, they probably I, never had such a, a large and voracious guest. <laughs> no, never has still to this day because my appetite's still there. But it was really after the meal when, when he said to me, listen, you know, would you be interested in going to, to a Torah class? I didn't really have any interest at the time, but I said out of respect to my cousin that I'll go to, a, I'll go to one class. And I went to one Torah class by Rabbi Moshe Gruenstein, who's the Val Harbor Young Israel rabbi, still uh, a good friend of mine. Still there. Yo, yeah. 20-something years later, we're still friends, and uh, we get together at least once a year for, for lunch or, or to visit. I went to one class, and I was starving for inspiration. The NFL days were three years behind me, maybe two years behind me. No more coaching. No more playbook. No more itinerary. No more goals. No more teammates. No more running out of the tunnel. And I was somebody who was always starved for inspiration, and I studied inspiration as an athlete. And now I was kind of like, 
not really sure what to do with myself. Yeah, I was working a little bit and I was trying to get involved in business, but I was hungry for inspiration. And Rabbi Grunstein fed me a little inspiration that evening. And I went on a journey with him for about six or seven years, going to all his classes and just learning a little bit more about proper ways to speech and lush and hura and more character development than anything else that interests me. And I started to find out a little bit more about the Jewish people and, and our holidays and the traditions, which I didn't know anything about. So obviously I've been to many Shabbases and, and Shabbosim, Jewish holidays that we've celebrated at home, lighting my menorah last night, my son's in town from college. And I've had the ability to travel, to truly travel the world to talk about what it's like playing in the NFL and what it's like being Jewish in the NFL, which is a drusha in itself, being the only one on the team and, and that experience. And then obviously, you know, just it, it's a journey. It's a journey that we're all on. You talk about inspiration. What do you think was most attractive to you about the learning that you were doing? You said, was it the character development? Was it the connection to something bigger? Um, was it, you know, being rooted in your past? What do you think really drew you in at that point in your life? I remember the Torah class that I went to was in a very wealthy doctor's home in Fort Lauderdale. He was hosting the class. And I remember knocking on his door. Now, I don't know you very well. We just met. I haven't seen you stand. I'm assuming you're not six foot five and a half. I'm just a, a shade below. Okay. So, so you probably don't worry about bumping your head on anything. I happen to worry about bumping my head. And I happen to notice everything above my head at all times. I don't want to hit ceiling fans. I have. I don't want to hit tour jams. I have, you know, I'm six, five and a half. You have an inch on, on your heel. Most door jams are six, seven. Anyway, I knock on this door. It was a pretty substantial house. I knew the neighborhood. I lived on the other side of the tracks. Also a very nice house, but it wasn't like the house that I was going to go to. So I knocked on the door and these 14 or 16 foot doors open and there's this little bitty doctor guy. He says, can I help you? I said, yes, I, I, I'm here for the Torah class. He goes, well, the rabbi just got here. Come on in. So he takes me through this walk through the house, through a maze. We get back to the house. I did notice a, be a few beautiful paintings that were lit up. I did see the sun starting to drop into the gorgeous lake behind his house. I saw some of the carpeting and the granites and the marbles. And I get to the back of the house and I see the rabbi. I never met him before. I see four ladies on one couch and five men on another couch and a chair in the middle next to a bowl of cookies. That was for me. I sat there and the rabbi smiles and he starts the class. And he starts talking about the Jewish people wandering in the desert. And I thought to myself, I remember that story and it's very long and it's very boring. So I'm not gonna listen to the rabbi. I'm gonna have a good time now for the next hour. And I'm gonna think about this house. And as the rabbi is talking, I look behind him and the sun's slowly dropping into this beautiful lake. And I decided right now that this is my home and I'm gonna invite all my teammates and all my opponents to my house for the weekend. We're gonna party NFL style. And we're going to ride on my jet ski and my motorboat and my sailboat and my kayaks and my canoes. We're going to play volleyball in my Olympic-style swimming pool, which was behind this house. And I'm going to have a DJ. I'm going to have a guy named Big Jim there cooking barbecue steaks. And we're just going to party all weekend. And everyone's going to enjoy my house and all the fruits of my labor. And here I go on this materialistic, focused mentality. And the rabbi's talking and talking, and I'm not listening to a word. And he gets to the end of the Torah class. And he says, if you focus your life on materialism, and on things, you're never gonna have anything in life because that materialism and those things can disappear and that's not the focus you should, that one should have in life. And I Ooh. thought immediately that this Gruenstein guy was a mind reader. And obviously he said a lot more things, which maybe I don't remember so well, but I do have the notes. I do have the notes uh, and, and which particular part he was, he was speaking to. And I just felt like 
obviously talking about you can't covet the neighbor's wife and the neighbor's car, and you shouldn't think these things. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a healthy way to think. And I was moved and motivated and inspired right then and there, and I went up to, to Brunstein after the class. I said, Rabbi, what the heck are you talking about, and where's that coming from? He goes, the Chumash. I said, the Chumash, the what? The five books of Moses, the Torah. I said, where do you get this book? He goes, I'll bring you one next week. So the next week he brings me a Chumash, shows me where, where we are in the weekly portion, and I, and I go on a journey with him for seven, eight years, and met some other wonderful rabbis along the way. So I've gotten a taste and a dose of a variety of, uh, of different people and, and learned from many, many different people over the years. You said you've done quite a bit of speaking around, uh, I guess, about your background, about your journey, your NFL story. What are some of the really interesting places you've been or unusual or, or inspiring people that you've gotten to meet in that process? You know, so many that I can't even remember them, to be honest with you. So many. I flew to South Africa for a 22-minute speech. <laughs> I was on the ground for less than 24 hours. They had a, a huge event for the Jewish community, and they, it was the year of, I think, the World Cup. That's, that's, I believe, soccer, right? They wanted a sportsman. They didn't really understand my football analogies and my football metaphors. They thought football anyway. was soccer. That's what they call it. So. <laughs> right. They didn't have any idea. But, you know, just an incredible. Um, I, I went with the Milwaukee Chabad community on a Sunday morning in a bus of maybe 12 or 15 men to a, uh, a Packer game. And when we got to the parking lot, these 11 or 12 guys got off the bus and everybody donned Tolleson to fill in. And we did a full shakri Sunday, an hour and a half before the Packer game. I'm not sure it's ever been done in the parking lot of Lambeau Field, which was a pretty cool experience. And uh, of course, the Packers won that day. <laughs> so, so I've done some very cool events and very cool things. It's something in this St. Louis community not too many years ago. They have a, a flag football league, and they want to make them speak in the stadium. Just a, a really a tremendous experience meeting so many, so many Jewish people around the world. I've had the chance to stay in a lot of different people's homes, some certainly nicer than others. <laughs> what are you up to today, Alan? Where are, you, where are you living? Where are you working? And have you ever been able to regain that thrill you know, from the, the playing days? I know a lot of athletes have a difficult time later in life, finding that rush, that sense of accomplishment in whatever career they end up going into. Uh, maybe you were able to find some of that in Judaism, as you sort of described through the classes and, and everything like that. What, what are you up to today and, and how has that been for you? Well, what I would say is, listen, if you interview any retired NFL player and you ask them what they miss, they're all going to say the money. No, they're not going to say the money. <laughs> they're going to say you can't get a thrill anywhere anytime, any place for any amount of money that is even close to running out of a tunnel and yeah. starting on any given Sunday, anywhere USA. You can't get it. You can't buy it. But the thing that every single player misses is camaraderie. You can't get that camaraderie anywhere. But what I have found being involved with the Jewish community globally and certainly involved in the Jewish community here in South Florida, that you have that camaraderie. You have it in droves. I, I got plenty of wonderful friends that I met being involved in the Jewish community. So I, I don't have that sense of, uh, of loss that a lot of players have. Um, I've been working the last four years for APAC. Um, I run one of their two offices here in Florida. I run an office that's called the Fellows Program that brings in recent college grads yeah. who are helping grow the donor base in the state of Florida. So I have 13 young recent college grads, and I'm the head coach. 13? So, and they're all, they're all in development? They're all in development, and it's a two-year program. It's, it's, it's more or less the farm team for APAC. Number one, Israel's faced with tremendous challenges, and we have a number of challenges here at home as well. So the pro-Israel community has got to grow and grow rapidly. This is one of the ways that we found 
to help grow the uh, pros or community. And it also allows APAC the ability to draft these superstars and move them somewhere across the country to help grow the donor base in, in those different parts of the country. So that's got to be really gratifying that you are sort of training the next cadre of, of leaders. Does this program exist in other regions or this is like South Florida is the minor league uh, system and then you, they, they spread out from there? Right. So the program started, uh, we're in the fourth year. It's, I started this four years ago with APAC. They started one here in Florida, also in New York. And um, about a year and a half or two into the program, they started in Los Angeles. So we have three yeah. locations that is specifically the, the, the fellows program for APAC. Wow. And it is, um, it's the kind of job that you have in life that you never go to work. I never feel like I'm at work. The things that I get to do with 13 young people or 10 or whatever the number is before they, they graduate and go to that next step and being involved in their lives personally and professionally and helping them grow and seeing their successes is, uh, is tremendously rewarding and really holy doing the work that we're doing. Must keep you young as well. Yeah, I would say so, but they really can't keep up with me, to be honest with you. <laughs> Are you involved yourself still in development work, or is it really just the managerial uh, role at this point? Well, I, I have you know, set office goals, and I have 13 people that are out on the streets from uh, Jacksonville to Miami, and I probably attend a third of those meetings okay. that they go on from a development perspective, but it's really up to them, and it's me coaching them and mentoring them and inspiring them uh, and training with them to achieve those financial goals. That's awesome. Did you have a strong connection to Israel all the way through? And actually, I should really have asked you when you first went to Israel, at what point in your journey? Right. So I, I never really heard the word Israel growing up as, as a kid. It, my, I wouldn't say my parents were Zionist, Zionistic, and we, we didn't really discuss Israel. I did go to Israel, I would say maybe 10 years after my first, my first Shabbos meal in my cousin's house. It was something that I felt like I needed to do. And I did get involved with, the, with a small Chabad, helped start a Chabad in downtown Fort Lauderdale. Las Olas or... Um, it's, it's right in that area. Yes. It's, it's right on Broward and federal. Um, so we got very close to the, to the rabbi and his wife. And during that time I met a hot-headed Israeli that might not sound so well. Uh, <laughs> and he just said to me, you need to give me a thousand bucks. I said, what do you need? He goes, you're coming to Israel with me in a few weeks. We're not negotiating this. You need to check this out. So I went with him, spent two weeks in Israel and, and it really just changed. I may be going back again in, in, in March. And there's many times I have plans to go there, but life sometimes knocks you off that plan. Right. Uh, you know, however, uh, I did go there and my connection to Israel certainly has become enhanced working for APAC and understanding and studying what are the challenges that Israel is, is faced with today, what they what have they been faced with and what can we do to, to help minimize that. What are some of your professional goals at this point, especially in this very transitional period in American-Israel relations where you know, we're recording uh, just about a week or so after Trump's announcement, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital um, and so forth. What do you see are some of the, the challenges from where you sit and where do you find yourself going professionally? Is this something you could see yourself doing for a while? Well, firstly, I absolutely love the work that I do. I'm, I'm very involved in the, in the hiring for all three of the offices and the, and the planning and training that goes into this program. And it's tremendous to see some of these people graduate from the program and go to work for APAC in San Francisco or APAC in New York or Aliyah in Israel and, and to keep in touch with me. So to develop relationships where I am in my life with somebody half my age and to have friendships with young people and to go to their weddings, which I've been to a number of over the last three years plus, is just tremendous with that. And I've taken a personal interest in their journey and in their growth. and as a friend and also as a, as a mentor. So listen, Israel has survival on their, 
you know, on the horizon. You know, the United States is worried about security. Israel's trying to survive and they have threats that have mounted and they continue to mount. And we, as the pro-Israel community, not the Jewish community, but the pro-Israel community, we have our work cut out for us. And, and APAC has to continue to reach out to other communities, not just the Jewish community, because the Jewish community, unfortunately, is dwindling, uh, going from 2% down to 0.8% in about another let's say 40 or so years. And what we're discussing now is, is not a Jewish issue and it can't be a Jewish issue. It has to be an American issue and a, and a strong Israel is a much stronger United States of America. And uh, we, we need to just continue to grow the base because unfortunately, I think we'll all agree, Israel has not fought her last war. Well, it sounds like you're really bringing to bear uh, the skills and the qualities that you absorbed through years of being mentored, being coached, being driven to some very concrete goals now in your current role as a mentor and coach of sorts yourself and as a person who's very driven towards what perhaps we could say is even a more elevated and aspirational goal even then than greatness in football perhaps and that is you know the, the greatness of the jewish people and and the land of israel so thank you for that service alan and thank you so much for joining us here today really appreciate hearing your story and god bless you and all the great work that you're doing Hey, my pleasure. God bless you as well. Happy Hanukkah to you, and uh, I enjoyed our chat. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash jews you should know finally if you have enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to jews you should know